I mentioned a, a verse that I posted on my Facebook account this week. For a little while, I just pulled away from all kinds of social media and just got back on, just in time for the anti-Christian zealots to come out of the, the woodwork. They seemed to turn out in droves on social media to dampen the joy of the Christmas celebration. Well, we resist such people. And one of the big arguments I have that uh, I didn't want to get into the argument, but the reality is that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. We find that in John chapter 10. The Feast of Dedication is called in John chapter 10 when the temple was um, delivered from the uh, Syrian captivity. When they took over the temple, they sacrificed uh, I think pig meat is one of the traditions and under the leadership of the Maccabean uh, generals who later became a series of kings in Israel uh, the Syrian uh, captivity was uh, ended and uh, that got celebrated as the temple was rededicated there was the sanctity of the temple and Jesus took that opportunity to go to Jerusalem and to be with the worshipping people that would gather on Hanukkah he didn't boycott it. He didn't stay home and say, where did God ever command that such a celebration should ever be done? And evidently, Jesus didn't have that view. And he used it as an opportunity to speak of himself as the true temple of God, the one the Father sanctified and sent into the world. And so if Jesus could use the opportunity of a, of a celebration that's a national celebration or a celebration that just is cultural or whatever it is to speak of himself... Well, we could use Christmas to speak about Jesus. We could use Christmas to tell the story of the birth of Jesus and to investigate and explore the narratives of the birth of Christ as they're presented to us in the Gospels. And we've been spending a couple of weeks now studying the birth narrative found in Matthew's Gospel. And we've seen something of the richness of these portions of Scripture. We began in chapter 1, and in chapter 1, the emphasis lays upon um, our Lord's identity, who He is. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the long-anticipated Davidic king. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's named Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, uh, the new Joshua that brings us into the inheritance saving his people from their sin, victoriously leading them into the possession of the promises of God. In chapter 2 uh, begins a shift of emphasis, though it's not completely without focus upon Jesus' identity. It seems to be more focused now upon the reaction that Jesus' coming met with on the part of Herod, the king, and the part of the wise men from the east. In a sense, what Matthew does in narrative, John does in just a plain old prose statement, a very well-known one of John 1, 10 and 11. John says, he was in the world. That is, the eternal word was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, or his own people, but his own people did not receive him. So he was met with unbelief. The world in general, his own people in particular, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See the contrast between unbelief and belief? The rejection of Christ and the reception of Christ. 
There's a sense in which it's that contrast of reactions that are found in the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We saw last week the reaction of faith. As the reaction of faith is displayed by the Magi, these Persian astrologers and interpreters of dreams who are in the employ of pagan monarchs, pagan kings. They're led by this mysterious star to come to Jerusalem. And then they're led by scripture to Bethlehem. They come to Jesus. They worship him and they offer him their gifts, the treasures that were fit for a king of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But it's in contrast to these Gentiles who are practitioners of occult arts. These people that were far off from the blessings and advantages that were given to Israel. And yet they came to Christ. They were led to Christ. They came to faith. They came to worship. In contrast to those magi is Herod the Great. Now Herod was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. But he had a very close desire to be embraced by the Jewish nation, to be their their leader, although he was a cutthroat, he was a deceiver, he was cruel, as we're going to see in the passage. Um, But he, along with all Jerusalem, it said, (coughs) reacted poorly to Jesus. Again, look at the passage in Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this is Matthew 2.1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. He's the first person that's placed before us. Herod the king. And we look at him this morning. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has born, been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, but not just Herod, not just Herod, it is all Jerusalem with him. So whatever it was that was bothering Herod, troubling Herod, and we give it to understand it was a threat to his throne that he saw that a rival king had been born. Where's he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod was troubled, but all Jerusalem was troubled as well. Exactly why they were troubled, we really don't know, except they didn't respond in worship either, did they? They didn't respond by look go, go to Bethlehem. You have the assembled chief priests and the scribes inquiring, who inquired of where the Christ was to be born, and, and then they, they tell them in Bethlehem of Judea because the prophet Micah said so. So they knew it was in Bethlehem, but they didn't go to Bethlehem. They didn't join with the with, with the Magi in worshiping him. And so we have a a poor reception on the part of the chief priests, the scribes. Herod and all Jerusalem. But it's Herod that we focus upon because Herod is the one who had not just a troubled heart, as many did because of the unknown perhaps, or just what's next, what's happening, we just don't understand this. Who are these people that are coming telling us about the birth of, of the king of the Jews? But Herod responded with savage rage against the Lord Jesus. And so we want to look at this savage rage that took place, this violent, fierce, uncontrollable fury that is directed against the child Jesus. And then what we want to do is we want to move on from there, and we want to look at the way in which this child is saved from the wrath of the king. We have a strange rescue that takes place. So savage rage moves to a strange rescue in the fact that Jesus family, his father is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt and then finally we have 
a passage of scripture that's quoted from the book of Jeremiah. And this is a word that, as I understand it, is a word of surprising relief. So that's where we're moving this morning. We're going to first look at savage rage. We look at savage rage right in the eye and see what it's like and see what it does because this idea of savage rage has not stopped in our world today. You see it in the newspapers all the time. Just read the stories of what's happening in the world, what's happening in the Ukraine, what's happening in Gaza, what's happening the world over, you know, what's happening in Darfur, what's happening in, in, in almost every continent of the world. Savage rage persists in the hearts of people. And we're going to see what it does and how it acts in its unmitigated cruelty. And then as we see savage rage, we're going to look at a picture of a strange rescue that takes place. Of God preserving his son, preserving his will and purposes with respect to his son. And then a word of surprising relief is where we're going to end this morning. So let's begin with the savage rage. This uncontrolled fury directed against the Lord Jesus. The text tells us Herod was troubled. He was, it's not just being perplexed. He was threatened. He was roiled in his soul. He saw his throne as being threatened by this one whom the Magi reported was born king of the Jews. He was agitated, disturbed, distressed. I'm the king and I will not brook any rivals. He didn't receive the news well. And the people of the city didn't receive the news well, which should have been gospel, which should have been good news, which should have been glad tidings, was for the leaders of the nation of Israel anything but. This was threatening. This was a challenge to their own position and places. And instead of welcoming the news and receiving their king and bowing before him in worship, they're all prepared to oppose him. They're all prepared to do the exact opposite. Herod's plan is simply to use the Magi in a search and destroy mission against this child. He tells them, go search diligently for the child in verse 8. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That chance of that ever happening. Herod's purpose is made clear in the words of the angel spoken to Joseph in the words of verse 13 where it says rise take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him a search and destroy mission that's what Herod is on uh, about looking to use these magi to accomplish his ends and when the magi did not fit in with his plans when in fact though they, he sought to deceive them they deceived him being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way bypassing Jerusalem they got out of town they got out of town quickly Herod now sees that his efforts to deceive the Magi were unavailing And so he becomes furious. He learns when it was that the star was seen. 
figures, well, anyone over two years of age is a possibility. And he sends to Bethlehem to destroy the children of Bethlehem. Can't destroy the king? Well, it's destroy all the children, because the king must be among them. That's his murderous, savage, wicked, rageful plan. Innocent children, all the male children, two years and under, in the whole region around Bethlehem, were put to death. Why in the world does Matthew give us this story? What's his design in including it? Well, I think it serves serves his narrative in a number of ways. I think, first of all, we see in contrast to this evil king, the power of human empire to serve its own interests at the expense of the people that they govern. I mean, when Israel desired a king, they said, we want a king like all the nations. Well, this is very often what the nation's kings are like. Engaged in a sinful quest for power and to keep it, to preserve it, that there's nothing they won't do to maintain their throne. They'll abuse others in their own interests. They will lie. They will deceive. They will commit acts, commit acts of just unimaginable cruelty. Look at the true king of Israel. Look at the one who humbled himself to take human flesh. Who says, I am among you as one who serves. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Look at the one who is the true king of Israel, who comes in a mission of self-denying love and mercy. Not to destroy, but to save. Not to hurt, but to heal. Look at the true king. He alone is worthy of the full devotion of our hearts. He alone is worthy to take the place of authority and power in the universe of God. For he alone will not misuse it. He alone will not abuse power. He alone will exercise power for the glory of God and the good of God's people. And so we see the contrast between Herod the the Great, supposedly, and the true greatness of King Jesus in his self-denying love that seeks to save the lost. In the second place, it's obvious that this story has parallels to the life of Moses. It was in Moses' infancy, his life was threatened too. Remember the edict of Pharaoh was to kill and to destroy all the male children of the Israelite women. And by faith, we're told, Moses was hidden away by his parents for three months. And ultimately, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, grew up in Pharaoh's household, possibly to be heir to the dynasty of Egypt itself. And yet chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And there's a sense in which it's Jesus who appears in the gospel as the new Moses, as the one who leads his people out of bondage to sin into the liberty of newness of life, new covenant life with God to the blessings that were promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of of being a seed, an inheritance, a worldwide blessing that would come to the nations through the people who belong to Jesus. And so I think we're set up from this very aspect of what Herod did 
to think in terms of Jesus is the new Moses come to bring a new exodus of the people of God out of the bondage of sin into the liberty of the worship and the service of the God of heaven and earth. Well, it's in this place of this mad, savage rage of Herod that God effects a very strange rescue. An angel of the Lord, we're told, in the words of verse 13, appeared to Joseph in a dream. It's interesting, Joseph in dreams have something of a commonality with another character named Joseph in the Old Testament and certain dreams that he possessed. Well, in a dream, it is Joseph who was told to rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. It's unusual, don't you think? That Egypt would be the place of safety. We think of Egypt as the place of slavery. We think of Egypt as the place of oppression. Egypt is the place of danger. You'd be going from the frying pan into the fire, going down to Egypt. But it's an interesting thing that Egypt was, in many times and in many places in the Old Testament, a place of deliverance, a place of safety, a place of protection, a place of preservation. In Genesis chapter 12, in the midst of a famine, Abraham went to Egypt. Egypt was kind of like the breadbasket of the region. The rivers of the Nile that gave um, the ability to, to grow wheat and to prosper. And of course it was to Egypt that Joseph was sent, sold into slavery into Egypt, but to prepare the way to save his family from the the famine of seven years that was going to come upon the earth. Remember it was Joseph that was given understanding by God to prepare for those seven years. As he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. And it was the place where his brothers came when the famine struck in Canaan. So at least for a time, Egypt was a place of safety. It was a place you, you, you fled to in a time of difficulty, in a time of famine. It was a place where Jeroboam, who became the king of the northern kingdom, after the dividing of the kingdom, he fled from the wrath of Solomon. He went to Egypt. And it was the place where many of the Judahites in the time of the Babylonian invasion went and they brought an unwilling Jeremiah along with them in the book of Jeremiah. So Egypt did have a long history, not just as an oppressor nation and an enemy to Israel, but as a place of refuge as well. I think it's an interesting understanding. If you look up all the references in the Old Testament to Egypt, it's kind of like the Lord has a love-hate relationship with them. In one sense, they were the enemies of his people, but in another sense, they're the future of being his people. Even in Isaiah 19, saying that Israel was going to be third behind Assyria and Egypt as the people of the living God. There's going to be the inclusion of Egypt into the plans and purposes of God. But remember, Israel as a people, we're, we're designed to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham's seed was to bless the nations. Through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's God's ultimate purpose. To send his mercies, his grace, and his salvation to all the nations of the world. But then in addition to providing the safe haven for Joseph and his family from the murderous rage of King Herod, this flight into Egypt takes upon itself another significance. This we're told 
In the words of verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now that's even stranger than just going to Egypt. It's stranger still to quote from Hosea 11.1 because simply that doesn't refer to Jesus at all. It's not referring to the flight into Egypt that Jesus, Moses, I'm sorry, that Moses, that I'm going to say Moses again, Mary, let me get it right, Mary the mother, and Joseph and Jesus. It's not, it's not referring to that at all. Hosea 11.1 1 is not looking into the future, it's looking into the past. It's looking to the history of God's dealings with the people of Israel when they were in captivity in Egypt. That out of Egypt God called his son. What is Matthew doing quoting it in reference to Joseph going into Egypt with Jesus? Well, that's why I read Hosea 11 to you. Hosea 11 is a passage that again tells us not only that God has something of a love-hate relationship with Egyptians, but there's a sense in which there's a love-hate relationship with Israel as well. Why? Because the people of Israel, having been brought out of Egyptian bondage, they failed to abide by the calling with which they were called. They were called by God to be his own people, a people for his own possession, a people that would be to him a treasured possession. Exodus 19 says, You've seen how I've taken you and brought you on eagle's wings to myself, that you would be a treasured possession. God says he wants them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And yet the reality is, as we read Hosea 11 and verse 1, that it simply never panned out as designed. The plan of God with respect to Israel being a faithful people, a loving people who loved the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength never did pan out. They were stiff of neck and hard of heart from the beginning. When Israel was a child, Hosea says, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, and the more they were called, the more they went away. The more they departed from me. The more they apostatized. They said we'll be God's people. They said we'll obey his laws. But when did they ever do it? Making golden calves? Refusing to go up to the land when God promised to be with them and give them his victory over the nations of Canaan? No. They never obeyed him. They turned to false gods. They kept on sacrificing to the Canaanite Baals. They're burning offerings to idols. God was with them to teach them as his child, to take them up in his arms, to lead them with cords of kindness and with the bands of love. He bent down to them. He fed them. And again and again and again, the verdict is in, my people are bent on turning away from me. They disgraced their calling. They dishonored Yahweh their king. In the days of Hosea, they brought upon themselves the judgment of the Assyrian captivity and destruction. And yet as we read in Hosea 11, God still yearns for them. God still desires them. How shall I give you up? Is what he declares. He will destroy them 
on the one hand, but restore them on the other. It appears that the judgment of the Assyrian invasion of the north, the later invasion of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians 140 years later, make way for the hope of a new exodus that the prophets were quite intent upon speaking of. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says the time's going to come where you're not even going to say the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. You're going to say the Lord who did another kind of deliverance in another way. That's what you're going to boast about. God's going to create a new people. He's going to bring about a new covenant that will ensure the blessings to a people who fulfill their calling, who are consecrated to God to succeed where the former exodus failed. And again, that's why in the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah about the exodus he's come to bring. He's come to bring this new deliverance. And that's what's signaled by the return of the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus from Egypt to Galilee. This promised new exodus will now be realized out of Egypt. I've called my son. In other words, the God that brought about the first deliverance from Egypt is about to bring another one. And so the fulfillment is not a prediction of future things from Hosea's part. But yet it's a recognition of a pattern that God has established of bringing about a deliverance, an exodus, that Jesus comes to replicate. Jesus comes to experience what Israel experienced. That's why you see later on in chapter 3, no sooner has he been brought out of Egypt, at least in terms of you know, the story that Joseph is telling, that uh, Matthew is telling, he's at the sea, being baptized by John in the Jordan. Just like Israel came to the sea to go over on dry land. And then he comes up from this baptism, and where does he go from there? Into the wilderness. Forty days. This is Israel spent 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And, and it's the very same temptations that Israel experienced in Deuteronomy that are spoken of. It's the very words of Deuteronomy that God designed to teach them through their trials, through their uh, testings that God gave to them in the wilderness that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that they are to, to worship the Lord their God and Him only they were to serve, and that they should not tempt the Lord their God. Read Deuteronomy. That's the whole purpose of education of Israel in the wilderness. God's going to teach His Son. And God teaches His Son as well here. The temptations that Jesus endured. So Jesus is the one who replicates the experience of, of, of Israel. From Egypt, to the sea, to the wilderness, and ultimately to the mountain. He speaks the words of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the thing that that's what Matthew's teaching us. That's what he's that's how he's presenting Jesus to us. The new Moses, who escapes the wrath of the Pharaoh-like King Herod. He's the new Israel, called out of Egypt to fulfill a calling that doesn't fail, but succeeds. And so we have the savage rage of a king. We have a surprising rescue. 
utilizing Egypt as a place to keep Jesus and his family safe until the time of, of the return. But then there's a word of surprising relief. And think about it now. Up to this point in this narrative, this is stuff you don't put in a Christmas pageant. It ends at verse 12, right? You see a Christmas pageant. It ends in verse 12. The wise men go back home. Doesn't go to the slaughtering of innocent children. That's not portrayed in the Christmas plays. Why? Because it's troubling. It's disturbing. It's a horrid act of murder. Something you really do need some relief from. And in a very surprising way, Matthew supplies that relief. And he does it by means of giving to us a quote from Jeremiah 31. Then was fulfilled. Now, interesting, the, the, introductory, the introduction here doesn't say as other introductions do. Then was fulfilled the word of the Lord. This is not God speaking here. God has no impl- implication in the murder of the innocents. That was, that was Herod's doing. It's not as if, well, God said these kids were going to get murdered, so hey, leave it to the Lord. No. The full responsibility of Herod is seen in the very way this passage is referred to. Just simply, then was fulfilled. Not what the, prophets, what the Lord spoke to the prophet. Then was fulfilled. This is a fulfillment of what Jeremiah spoke in Jeremiah 31. About this voice being heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. At first glance, this is a quotation hard to understand. What, do you, what does it all mean? How does it apply? It doesn't seem to give much help. It only seems to underscore the misery of the situation. A woman weeping over the loss of children. And yet I've entitled it, Jeremiah's Surprising Relief. I spent Sunday school endeavoring to give something of the fuller picture of what I think is found in Jeremiah 31. Because it can be, I mean, I had voluminous notes. If I, if I was to preach my notes to you this morning, I'd be keeping you here until about 3 o'clock this afternoon. The amazing things that's going on between Matthew 2 and Jeremiah 31 and Matthew 27, I really can't put into a sermon. It's just not going to fit. But I'm going to endeavor to give you something of the, of the brief, brief, briefer version, the shorthand version. When you go back to that place in Jeremiah 31 of Jeremiah's prophecy and you see what's being said, um, what's being said? Well, first of all, Jeremiah 31 is not prophesying the slaughter of the innocent in Bethlehem. That's not what Jeremiah is saying. It's about the Babylonian captivity. It's about the fact that in Ramah, that was the place of departure where all of the people of Judah were gathered together to be sent away into exile. It's a scene of bitterness, of weeping, of lamentation, of defeat. The people of Judah have experienced the trauma of war. They've experienced the horror of invading armies destroying their cities. Jerusalem destroyed. The temple destroyed. Now survivors being assembled to go off 
into another country. Refugees, displaced. Who would not lament? Who would not weep? But it's in the midst of the sorrow of the nation that Jeremiah gives what's called a book of consolation. And he gives a book of consolation in which the major note is that God is going to restore. God's going to repair the mess. God's going to bring about a new covenant. God's going to bring about a time of joy and rejoicing, of dancing in the streets. Bitterness that leads to joy is a theme found frequently in the Word of God. The joy, though sorrow continues for the night, joy comes in the morning. They that sow in tears reap in joy. Or passages in the book of the Psalms. And it's Rachel, mother to the tribes of Benjamin and Joseph, who's pointed out as one who weeps, who mourns. She's weeping and refusing to be comforted for her children because they aren't no more. Now what in the world does a weeping Rachel have to do with relief in the midst of the trauma of war? Well, again, the context is still is that book of consolation. In chapter, chapter 31, uh, verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 15 that speaks about Rachel weeping for her children is about the only negative note to be found. It begins on a note of joy. It has this matter of weeping in verse 15. And then verse 16 says, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there's reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. There is hope for your future. Weeping Rachel weeps in hope. Think think of the times when the Bible indicates that Rachel might have wept. The historic Rachel, the mother of Benjamin, the mother of Joseph, the mother of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim through Joseph. Well, certainly the scripture indicates there was distress in her heart and sorrow in her soul over her barrenness. Remember how in the book of Genesis she cries out to her husband, Jacob, give me children or I die. <laughs> and Jacob rightly says, my God, I, I, I have no ability to give you children. But she sorrowed like Hannah did. Remember Hannah weeping for the reality of her barrenness. She wanted children. Though Rachel had to wait a while, God God heard her prayers. God wiped away her tears. God gave her Joseph, her firstborn child. Joseph the dreamer. Joseph who went down to Egypt. And going down to Egypt saved many souls alive. I think those are all thoughts that need to come into our mind in understanding and assessing God's dealings with people where there's much reason for sorrow. We can say as Jacob did in the time of Joseph's murder, he thought, and or loss to him, and Benjamin also being in Egypt, all these things are against me, is what he says. When the reality was all these things were really for him, he just didn't know it. 
He didn't know what God was going to do. The point of it is that all things do work together for the good. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant all this for evil, but I, God meant it for good. For the saving of many souls alive. Now in Matthew's Gospel, another Joseph, another dreamer, goes down into Egypt to what? To save his family. To save his son from Pharaoh's rage, from the new Pharaoh, Herod. The son who would save his people from their sins. It's interesting that in verse 7 of Jeremiah, the weeping of Rachel is countered by the call to sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nation, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, Yeshua, Jesus, by interpretation, save your people. He will save his people from their sins. God is a saving God. And even in the midst of the abounding of sin, his grace superabounds. His provision of his salvation meets people in the greatest of desperation. Weeping Rachel wept over her barrenness and was given Joseph as her son. She was rewarded with a son. But she also wept for her children at her death. The scripture tells us that Rachel went into labor as they approached Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. At Bethlehem, interestingly enough, in Genesis 35. And in her hard labor, she's filled with pain, she's filled with fear, she's filled with hopelessness. Her midwife says to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. Yet as Rachel lay dying, you know what she did? Her final act before she died? She gave this son a name. The name she gave the son was Benoni. Son of my sorrow. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel filled with heartbreak and lamentation and distress. Son of my sorrow. And yet the maid says, do not fear, you have another son. You have reward for your labor. Thinking of labor and birth. Though death took place, a son was born and a son who after her death, Jacob says, son of my sorrow, not, not that won't do. He can't be named son of my sorrow. Jacob names him son of my strength. Son of my strength. It's tragic to lose a wife in childbirth. But the recognition that God gives blessing where sorrow reigns. That's the lesson of Rachel. That's the lesson of weeping Rachel. Rachel's tears teach us that though we may sorrow through the night, joy comes in the morning. God is in the business of changing loud mourning of desperation and distress at the wicked acts of kings and transgressors and sinners of every sort. He turns despair into joy. The joys of his salvation, the joy unspeakable and full of glory, that comes from the knowledge of his son and the comforts of his grace and the comforts of his salvation. We don't really have time to do it. Maybe when we get to Matthew 27 we'll do it justice. But in 
In chapter 27, there's another scene that sort of counterbalances what happens in chapter 2. Because again, in chapter, chapter 2, it's a horrific scene. It's the death of innocent children. Innocent blood is shed by Herod. But it's not the only innocent blood Matthew's Gospel speaks to us of. Because in Matthew chapter 27, there's the innocent blood of Jesus, betrayed by Judas. Remember, Judas comes back with the 30 pieces of silver, and he says, I've sinned, and that I've betrayed what? Innocent blood. Innocent blood. Just like the innocence in Bethlehem, that you know, Jesus' deliverance and rescue in Egypt did not circumvent the reality that God allowed that wicked King Herod to do the things that he did. And yet it's really to tell us that innocent blood is something that does happen in a fallen world. And yet God is in the business of entering into the horror and the sorrow and the bitterness in a personal way. Jesus is the holy, harmless Son of God betrayed by one of his followers, delivered into the hands of the kings and emperors, that rage and imagine a vain thing that will not have him to reign over them. <clears throat> you know, we can look at the death of Jesus as the death of an innocent victim and be bereft of comfort, except for the knowledge that this is, leads to the joy of the salvation of God. Ye by wicked hands crucified and slew him, and God raised him up. What Herod meant for evil. But the priests and the elders of Judah meant for evil and putting Jesus to death. God intends for good. The greatest act of human outrage and hardness of heart and cruelty and criminality, ultimately God brings the salvation of the world out of that which the greatest act of sin that one could imagine, the killing of the Son of God, the putting to death of the creator of the world, of the one who the world was made by, was in the world, and the world didn't know him. He came to his own people in fulfillment of the promises to the Father, and he's rejected. He's scorned. He's nailed to a cross. And yet God's final word is never death. It's life. God's final word is not destruction. It's salvation. God's final word is a word of mercy and love and grace and peace and he gives to a fallen world and he comes and declares to them his willingness to receive all who come to him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I think what's betrayed in Matthew 2 is just the reality of the world as it is and all of its fallenness and all of its horrific, outrageous acts of cruelty that exist. Be it in the midst of all that darkness, God brings light. He brings light in the person of his son. And so in the midst of all the horror of a world in sin, we're people of hope. We're people confident of the salvation of God and confident that that message of salvation is transformative. That message of salvation comes into the world to turn people from their sins from their self-interest, from their self-service, to worship and to serve the God who is worthy to be bowed before and worshipped. We don't need to persist in a Herod-like revolution against heaven.
but in a magi-like submission and reverence and worship and obedience to the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, how thankful we are for the contrast that we see in your word, the contrast between light and darkness and good and evil, of Herod and the Magi, of Herod and Jesus, what a true king looks like who's worthy to reign, the one who sits enthroned in majesty at your right hand with all authority in heaven and earth, given to him. We bow our knees in loyalty and allegiance to you, Lord Jesus, that you must reign till you put all of your enemies under your feet. We're thankful that your warfare is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the evils of this world. We're called to contend with the evils that exist all around us and to bring light into the midst of the darkness, to proclaim truth where error prevails, to proclaim love where hate dominates, to proclaim blessings where curses are spoken. We pray that we would be a people that committedly give ourselves afresh to you this day to live in loving obedience to your Lordship and to honor you, our gracious and worthy sovereign, for in, in all ways that you call us to render service to your great name. And so be pleased to bless your word, be pleased to Lift our hearts heavenward, be pleased to lighten the burden of a fallen world as we consider your goodness and your beauty and your love, your majesty, the fullness of your grace as we come and we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.